Welcome, Providence. Uh, we are going to have a great time here uh, over the next hour. So uh, I was telling Dale Scott, I said, I think this will be one of the best uh, Sundays in my church life after going to church for 46 years. And he's like, I'm getting my popcorn. So <laughs> get your popcorn out. It's going to be a great hour uh, here uh, today. I want to introduce a guest who I just met during uh, Fellowship Time. Uh, Josh Rodriguez, if you'd stand up. Josh is uh, running for the U.S. Senate uh, as an independent, and he is here. And um, Providence, we, are, we don't steer away from politics. Uh, we don't make politics the central thing. But the Bible says we're supposed to pray for people in authority that we can lead a quiet and peaceable life. And for you know, people of wealth, that's like government stay out of my hair. But marginalized communities really need people in positions of power to lobby for their benefits. And without that, we wouldn't be where we're at today if we didn't have good leaders. So, Josh, if God were so grace you with a Senate seat, we trust that you will uh, advocate for the marginalized and those who are overlooked uh, in um, our state. Uh, you're running for national Senate, right? You're going for the big, big, okay, the national house. Okay, yeah. We need a lot of help over there, so uh, that would be awesome. All right. Um, we do, I want to talk briefly about finances here. I, Kevin mentioned we do need some significant gifts here from the church body just to help the church general operations uh, before the end of the year. We only have three Sundays left. We don't meet the last Sunday of the month. But then also at Cross Purpose, uh, we've had a banner year. I think um, we will graduate more neighbors with uh, full-fledged careers than at any time in our history. Uh, we're able to raise more money than any time in our history. Uh, we moved into this headquarters. It's just been an unbelievable year. But we did get a call from a foundation partner in Washington, D.C. They are going to, for every dollar that we raise, they are going to double it uh, dollar for dollar between now and the end of the year. Now, most nonprofit matching campaigns, you know, some donor who already gives you 10 grand says, hey, let's make it a match. And if you don't match it, they'll still give you the 10 grand. It's kind of not really a match. You know, it's the dirty little secret of nonprofit fundraising. This is not that way. Like if we raise $10,000, we're going to raise the check for another $10,000. And it says up, up to four hundred grand we can get uh, through this campaign. So, uh, and it's, but it's only up to $1,000 per individual. Ushers, if you'd come and pass out that uh, card. You guys already got it. Uh, we're calling it the Duplicate Campaign. Don't just donate, duplicate. Uh, it's up to $1,000 per person. So even if husband and wife are here, put one on one credit card, one on the other and uh, max it out for us. We, we think we could raise an additional 100. I'm telling you to max out your credit cards for the gospel. Amen. Amen. You already do it for everything else, so don't act all holy and like you're, you know, Financial Peace University people or something, you know. I know the naughtiness of your hearts, okay? So, so I can challenge you in gospel love to give sacrifice. And by the way, bring, if you have children, bring your children into the decision and into watching you do it, okay? Uh, it is one thing to speak words. as It is the best thing to live the life. So if you would help us with that, uh, that would be great. You will actually get your receipt from the foundation in D.C. as a 501c3. You won't get it from Cross Purpose, and you'll be spammed by them over the next year, but small price to pay. Just block them, okay? All right. Um, this is... I, I've been so excited about this Sunday. We've been planning this for a year, and I'm pumped. And uh, we're going to have some special time. I'm going to give a short message here at the beginning, and then the congregation will take over uh, from there. So we've called this the year of Jubilee. 
and I'm glad our guests, Ted and Shelley Travis, are with us. Uh, Ted, back in 2008, um, talked to me and he said, Jason, when you come to the neighborhood here, it's really important that you reread your Bible again for the first time. Uh, you need to read the book of Acts and Romans and not insert Jew and Gentile. You need to insert black and white into those passages and let those passages come alive to you. And I can't tell you how much that has changed my perspective of the scriptures because I was taught in seminary that all this stuff was theological. It didn't have a socioeconomic or racial component to it. That was never addressed in my seminary classes. Uh, but I got a different view of the scriptures, and it's, it's a constant kind of like a deconstruction, reconstruction kind of thing going on there. But what, it didn't, what Ted did not tell me was I also had to reread church history uh, because that's just as sanitized in white culture as the theology is. Um, if I were to say, who is the first missionary, part of the modern missionary movement, who is the pioneer that you've been taught in Sunday school, church, and Bible college? Well, not Paul. I mean, talking the modern missionary movement, you guys are so, you guys think you all know the Bible. Uh, what's that? William Carey. William Carey, yeah. We always hear about Adoniram Judson or William Carey, Moody Bible grad, right here on the third row, yeah. That, Moody Bible working on computers, so, all right. <laughs> the first missionary was not Adoniram Judson, and it was not William Carey. That's kind of like dominant culture paradigm. The actual first missionary was a slave. George Leal. Never heard of him, did you? A slave. Uh, a full decade before Carey sailed for India, Leal was born a slave in the colony of Virginia, and he launched his preaching career in his young 20s. Um, he gathered slaves for what would be considered the very first African-American church in America, after the Revolutionary War, he was freed and fled to Jamaica to escape being re-enslaved. Okay? Just think of that. Just think of living that life, right? He arrived in Jamaica as an indentured servant, but would serve as a missionary evangelist to the island. He became the first Christian to win a significant number of slaves on the island of Christ. The first to plant a church composed of slaves, preached in homes, public settings. And in a letter in 1791, he reported 500 converts and 400 baptisms, and they launched the Windward Road Chapel, the first Baptist church on the island. He was so successful, you would think everybody would be excited, including like Christian white slave owners, right? Oh no, oh no. They feared the impact the slave population, if the slaves were to embrace Christianity, quote, if their minds are considerably enlightened by religion or otherwise, that it would be attended with the most dangerous consequences. What are those consequences? I lose my free labor for my rich home, right? And we can't let the gospel penetrate those people's hearts. And uh, all he tried to appease the slave owners, but he faced opposition, charged with sedition, jailed on numerous occasions. But he set up the Baptist denomination on the island and actually probably one of the very first multi-ethnic churches where he eventually had not just slaves, uh, but he also had freedmen and white started joining his church as well. Uh, his ministry continues on the island of Jamaica to this day, but he, he's buried in an unmarked grave. Um, that to me is great history. Who better to preach a gospel of liberation and freedom than somebody who knew exactly what the opposite felt like on a physical level and then also on a spiritual level? 
who would preach a gospel of a God of liberty and freedom, because the gospel at its core is fundamentally about the idea of freedom. The gospel was actually the seed that actually was planted in the abolition movement in England through William Wilberforce and his Clapham sect. And then America basically took their learnings from those diehard believers in England, and it carried through to the States. And it was us then who learned from them that we then finally, through the Emancipation Proclamation, declared people free. Now, if you study the abolition movement, they will talk about that day as a day of jubilee. It is a day of jubilee. If you read uh, W.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folks, he will talk about jubilee songs, jubilee services. January 1st, they would have jubilee uh, days. They would have jubilee weeks. It was an entire uh, ethos around this idea of jubilee. So most people from African-American culture would say the jubilee moment for the American, uh, the African-American in this continent was in 1865. Well, the Jubilee year harkens back to Leviticus where it talks about this 50-year rhythm. Well, 50 years from 1865 was 1950. That became the Great Migration where uh, the African Americans were moving north to escape all the Jim Crow laws and start a new life, and tens of thousands of people moved up north. 50 years later, exactly, it was 1965. What was that? The year of the Voting Rights Act. It was another jubilee, giving people a voice on so many levels. Fifty years later, the first African-American president was wrapping up his term in office. So you can't dive too deep into black history without stumbling upon this idea of jubilee that is talked about uh, by Frederick Douglass, is talked about by Martin Luther King. And what are they talking about? They're talking about this passage in Leviticus 25, that somewhere our God, through his great mind, sovereign God, wanted to put a rhythm into his kingdom people that they would rest, celebrate, and, and restore, and give relief. And he did that through the system of Jubilee. So his, his orders to the people of Israel in Leviticus 25 was every seven years, you're going to take a year off and not work. Now, if you own a business in this room, you're going, oh my gosh, that would be terrible. If you're like the rest of us, you go, that would be awesome, you know, to have that year off. It gets worse for the business owner because after we do that seven times and you take the 49th year off, there was an additional year off, the 50th year, and that was called the year of Jubilee. Two years off straight. Can you imagine how awesome that would be? Uh, I'm a boss. We're not doing that, but um, <laughs> we're going to tinker around the edges. What, without going through all of Leviticus 25, I'll sum it up for you briefly by saying it had, I see four key principles in Jubilee. One was this issue of rest. That in that year, verse 11 says, there, you do not sow and you do not reap. All right? It is just a time of rest. Secondly, if you look at verses 13 through 34, you will see this just and equitable what I call redemption and restoration, especially of land and humans that were owned as property. So it was this process whereby if you uh, were given a piece of land by God as they came across the Jordan and as Joshua distributed the land, but you fell upon financially hard times and you had to sell that land, there's a process where that land would be restored to the original owner. And it was this, 
this, uh, if you read through it, you see the mind of God and how it was fair to the person who bought it and also fair to the original owner. But the idea was at the end of Jubilee, everybody was back on their home turf. And then there was the issue of release. In verse 39, it says, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. So you could sell yourself to pay off debts. And this was a process then at Jubilee whereby you would be released from those shackles of slavery uh, and be a freed person. And then there's the issue of relief. It says in verse 35, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor or unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among them. Don't take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God. Okay? That's the idea of giving to the poor among you. So those are the four key pieces. Rest, redemption, restoration, release, and relief. I don't know why God did that, but in his mind, he wanted to put in the DNA of the world this rhythm of rest. And he ordered the people of Israel to do it. And you know how many times they did that? Zero. Zero times they did that. Why? Why do you think the year of Jubilee was never enacted? Too hard for who? <laughs> I'm going to say, the slave's not going, oh, yeah, that's too hard. Yeah, freedom would just be a burden on my heart. No, it's the rich, right? It was people in power that probably essentially vetoed it. You know, my, my sons are traveling around the country, around the world on this missions trip, and my son called me at 3 o'clock in the morning from Chiang Mai, Thailand, and was talking to me, and he's just going through this spiritual revival. And he's like, Dad, as I'm reading the Bible, and I'm you're hearing all these mission fields and stuff like that, he said, like, I don't understand, like, like, if the gospel is really the gospel and what the Bible says is really true, he goes, why are people not selling their stuff and giving it away? Like, I don't understand, Dad. He's like, he's basically saying, why are Christians not Christians? You know? And I was like, oh, no, I have to tell him. <laughs> that's kind of the way it is. Like, I said, that's why we built Providence and we built it, because we said we're just done with that brand of Christianity that gives 3% of their income to the people and work of God. Like, if the church in America gave 10% of their income to the people and work of God, it would solve global hunger, it would solve, it would get clean water for the world, we could fund all Christian ministries at their current level, and uh, we'd cure all preventable disease within five years. If the Christian church alone in America gave 10% of their income, right? So I have to break the news to my son. Yeah, we're the wealthiest country in the world and we still give a measly like 3%. And he's just like, Dad, that's wrong. I'm like, I'm so glad you feel that way. Help us fight the machine, right? So they, they, are in, they are ordered to do Jubilee. They never do it. So then the prophet Isaiah comes along and he says, hey, I know we've instituted this thing called Jubilee. No one's got the guts to actually do it. But I'm going to tell you that there's going to be a day where someone's going to come and declare Jubilee. And he will say these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon you. He has called upon me to bring good news to the poor, sight to the blind, deliverance to the captives, deliverance to the oppressed. He has called upon me to declare the acceptable year of our Lord. Isaiah said, someone's going to come and promise that, and that person is going to be the Messiah who's going to announce Jubilee. Sound familiar? What Isaiah 61 was talking about, it's exactly what Leviticus 25 was about. So Jesus comes on the scene and why do you think in this auditorium we don't have John 3.16 on the wall? 
because that's about my personal redemption, my personal salvation. I get to go to heaven. I get to get out of hell for free, and Jesus is my uh, buddy, and he loves me. That's John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that if you believe that you'll become part of his family. That's true. That's the atonement gospel, though. And that has been individualized in Western culture. This is saying, no, that when God comes upon a people, it's not just about you, it's about all things, and God is renewing all things, including the society in which we live. And it's multidimensional. And so when Christ came into the synagogue, there in Luke 4, he opens up the Isaiah scroll and he reads the Jubilee text. And you can imagine, if you're a student of Scripture, that would have rocked you. I thought, as I read that text on the wall, in my years of Christianity, that was all about the spiritual liberation of people who are lost without God. He's healing the brokenhearted. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives. Yeah, that's, that's spiritual captivity and recovery of sight to the blind. That's spiritual blindness. Thankfully, over the last 11 years of living in this neighborhood, it's actually been key people have come alongside me and said, that's not just spiritual, that's physical as well. That if the gospel is the gospel, we will actually see people in physical captivity gaining their liberty. We will actually see people with ailments being healed. We will actually see people in poverty coming out. But then also, I actually, until I studied this text this week, didn't see this third part of it. And Gordon MacDonald, who is, I believe he's a chancellor down at Denver Seminary, he said, you know what we've actually taken out of that verse is the rich. We've talked about the spiritually poor, and we've talked about the physically poor. But he said, I think also Christ was saying this to the rich. And MacDonald says this, he says that Jesus was saying, I want you people to know that I'm not looking at the surface of your lives, but when people categorize you, the rich, in terms of the model of your car, the town in which you live, the degree you hold, your job, the money you got, or the clothes you wear, I'm looking into the center of your souls and I see men and women in poverty, imprisoned, and blind, and enslaved, and I've come to speak to people like you. See, that text is for everybody. That God can liberate the poor, he can liberate the rich, he can take care of your spiritual bondage and captivity and blindness, as well as your physical. How liberating is that? That is the nature of the gospel. Have you experienced it? I actually think this is a personal aspect of this too. That Jubilee was a societal reformatting, but also this individual work in our hearts. I want to ask you this morning, Maybe this year of Jubilee 2020, you need some more time of rest. Maybe it's time for you to do some redemptive and restorative work. Maybe there's some people that owe you some stuff, and it's time just to let it go. And maybe there's some relief that you need to give. I was reading the story from NPR two years ago on Robert Ebeling, who is the engineer who worked on the 1986 Challenger that at my age of 13 years old, I remember being in school, and when the Challenger blew up, it was a national disaster. And we all remember that day, unless you're a millennial. Um, Ebeling and four other engineers pleaded for that launch to be delayed. They said, the f the, this shuttle is not ready to go. He went home that night and told his wife, Darlene, that shuttle is going to blow up, and NASA is not listening to me. Three weeks after the explosion... He and another engineer spoke to NPR, and now they've re-interviewed him again. Since that day, he suffered from deep depression. 
He's never been able to lift the burden of guilt. He watched the images over and over. He goes, I could have done more. I should have done more. As the reporter is interviewing him, his eyes are watering. He says, I was inadequate. I didn't argue the data well enough. And he is actually a religious man, a man of faith. And he goes, I have prayed for the last 30 years about this, and I think that this was one of the mistakes that God made. He shouldn't have picked me for that job. But the next time I talk to him, I'm going to ask him, why me? You picked a loser. Do you see the need for a country to walk up to Ebeling and say, be released? You are not a loser. You actually were the winner in the whole story. You just didn't get listened to. But he needs someone to walk up and say, just let that thing go. It's released. The theme of Jubilee is deep and the ideas are deep. Undergirding all of this idea is this idea, this theological idea that everything belongs to the Lord. The owner of the land who had to restore it back to the original owner, the idea is this, hey, the land is the Lord and it's ours to steward, so every resource we have belongs to him. And God gave us our possessions not to put us into bondage, but to actually give us freedom. And the fact that if we actually lived in a jubilee lifestyle, God would provide for us. So we don't need to sit there and worry about giving stuff away. Given it will be given back to you, as the kids sang this morning. You say, how do we do this? How do we afford it? And God says, I will bless you. Verse 20, he says, you might ask, what are we going to eat in the seventh year if we don't plant or harvest our crops? He says in verse 21, I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. Don't worry about it. I'll make your crops just take off. Well, why do we call this Jubilee? Because you know what? God has blessed us. He has blessed us. We're 11 years old, six months in. Um, this little community center opened up on 30th and Franklin. And uh, it was owned by Neighborhood Ministries, run by Ted and Shelley Travis. A group of 12 of us met in the first floor of that building. We prayed for it. They needed $300,000 for the building. It was valued at $450,000, but we were 50 people. The church was six months old, and we had no money. So I said, hey, we'll buy the building, but only if we get all of, all of it in cash and pledges. We're not going to go into debt over this thing. And we went up to the deadline of the closing, and we only had $150,000 of the $300,000. So I called Ted and said, we can't do it. We were actually in Ted's apartment above coffee at the point, which used to be called Blackberries. And Ted's like, well, I talked to my board, and we'll give you another 30 days, or 60 days, I think, but we need 3,000 bucks to pay our own bills. Can you give us 3,000 bucks? I said, we don't have 3,000 bucks. I said, but we'll pray about it. So I, we were in Ted and Shelley's living room, a circle of 12 chairs. Everyone went around praying, and I was like, oh, God, do something, because we're going to get this thing voted down. The first like, leadership thing I had to do as a pastor was going to be an utter failure. Everybody's hopes are up, and we can't do it. And there was three people, then two people, and as they come to me, we're going to open our eyes, and they're going to look at me and say, what do we do? And I, for the first time in my life, I've told this story before. I said, God, call me on the phone and tell me what to do. Call me on the phone and tell me what to do. And I'm not that, that's not my theological heritage, right? I mean, <laughs> charismaticism would have been a huge step for me. But my phone rings. It doesn't say heaven on caller ID, it said Reading, Pennsylvania. But I was like, all right, I'll take it, you know? And I ran into the side room, and this guy said, I was going to call you on Monday. God told me to call you right now and give you 3000 bucks. And uh, I was like, 
I came back in the room, and all of our unspiritual deacon board had already voted it down. And uh, I said, well, let me tell you what God said. So we re-voted, got it, and then 60 days later, we got this building. Uh, we didn't have any money to fix it up. We slept in boxes uh, down at Crack Triangle in six-degree weather to raise the first $7,000 to fix the flooring and paint the walls. And then we opened it up as the Encompass Community Center. Well, when this building became available, we no longer needed that building. And we were able to sell that building for $1.2 million. We took that money and bought the Steel Street Apartments down the road free and clear. And now we use six units over there for affordable housing for people in this church and in our neighborhood. But we still had leftover money, and we were blessed. You know, there's never been a time in 11 years where as an urban church, we had money left over. And we don't know what to do with it, right? So we basically said to you nine months ago, what do we do? We're going to take 130000 of these dollars and let's do a year of Jubilee. And you all voted on about 30 or 40 ideas. We pared them down to about 15. And a team has gathered around that. And today it's about launching that uh, to you all. And we just said, as long as it fits those four buckets, we'll do it. You guys, you could have voted us. We could have all went to Vegas. <laughs> but you didn't do that because you care about people. Bummer. All right, so uh, even in the 100, I think $130,000 we ended up putting into the full kitty, you guys voted to actually give two-thirds of that away uh, and not just spend it on ourselves and do some fun things. Um, there might be some people here who criticize the fact that we're going to take $130,000 and use it the way we're going to use it. Uh, we could give that to the poor. I just There's some Bible passages you should probably read. Um, but I will say this. Uh, we could have given it all away to the community, but this congregation, we are in our ninth year of nonprofit work. At the end of December 31st, we will have invested $20 million in our neighbors, helping them get out of poverty, okay? So I think $130,000, uh, we will be fine. Um, and two-thirds of that we're giving away uh, to other people. But I want to challenge you as you hear the presentation this morning with a few thoughts. One is revel in the joy of Jubilee. We're going to have a great 2020. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to bless a lot of people. I also want you to think through those four key ideas in Jubilee and perhaps what God may have you uh, to do as well. So what we're going to do now is the congregation, a team form, they're going to come and explain to you how we're going to use the Jubilee funds uh, together. Our ushers have a Jubilee 2020 booklet, and we're going to walk through that. And for the next 15 minutes, you're going to hear uh, from our people what you decided to do and what we're going to do this year. 